two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by Amanda Renteria. She is the former Chief of Operations at the California Department of Justice, former Chief of Staff in the United States Senate, and a National Political Director for a large U.S. presidential campaign. And back in May of 2020, she became the new Chief Executive Officer at Code for America, which is a network of people making government work for the people, by the people in the digital age. But her roots are as a teacher in her small hometown. And today, she will tell us about how we can teach governments new ways on how to govern. Hello, Amanda, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that introduction. Well, you have an amazing <laughs> history, and I think it would, it would be a, a disservice to your work and to our audience to not know how much work you've done in this space. And you've had your feet both inside government bureaucracies and sort of the political arm. You've been a political staffer. And I'm curious to know, how would you characterize in the United States the relationship between the bureaucracy and elected officials? Is it, is it a tense relationship? Is it a dysfunctional one? Is it a dream? Is it something else altogether? <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it's funny to think, to think so intentionally about that relationship, because I do think in this country right now and over the last four years, we've really spent some time redefining it. For the first time in this country's um, history, or at least in my lifetime in public service, um, we're starting to see a lot of these public servants who have largely been behind the scenes, doing the work on the front lines, all of a sudden poke their heads up and say, no, this is who we are. This is how we're going to define ourselves. Not only are there in some of these political debates, but you're seeing they themselves um, putting their careers on the line to remind folks about what it means to be a public servant, the honor of serving others. And I'm really glad you mentioned that for me, this started as a teacher. Um, this also started on the front lines at the city of San Jose, working in the actual, I guess you'd say, bureaucracy. And what I have to say is, you know, I am excited. One of the benefits of seeing public servants now step up and talk about who they are is I think it will have a lasting effect on how we see public servants in the future and also who gets attracted to it. Um, so I'm hopeful. I wouldn't say it's a dream. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I will say it is intense, but mostly I will say it's a place of hopeful definition right now because public servants have a voice in a way they've never had before. Well, that's one of the things that I've personally noticed in the space that the job description of public servants typically in the past has been, like you were saying, to be in the background because they were essentially to execute a mandate or a platform that has been formed by an elected official or by a political party. But now with co-creation and, and collaboration and the, the, the intermixing of civic tech and the private sector and academia with the government, the public service is put in an uncomfortable position from, and not just high ranking officials here, I'm talking about the rank and file. They have to go into the public realm now and engage in ways that were not thought they would, ever would. How do you 
see that like is it been a more difficult transition to to adapt to that requirement you know it 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 adds a new layer which is you are now not just the person you know behind the counter helping but now you're the face of this institution of this entity mm -hmm. and by the way i say that at a time where people have really lost trust in some of these institutions and that makes it even more complicated for public servants it also makes it imperative that public servants actually define their job define the role of institutions and have a voice in the process you know whether it's redoing systems and saying hey elected official it should work like this because i sit on the front lines and i see it every single day um, that to me really adds a dimension that we've needed at least in this country for a very long time where people who are making the policies are so far from those from that policy implementation that code for america you know sits right next to those public servants trying to do it better and really trying to help those systems not just serve people but trying to help those systems help the people who are serving people. And I think that's really the critical key. Some of my research and from my understanding, you're a big fan of sort of closing the loop, the feedback loop that ties sort of everything together. And for the most part, especially we'll call it sort of the traditional way the government has governed has been, we're going to put a plan together. We're going to send it off for consultation. We'll get your input. And then it sort of stops there in terms of engagement. Can you talk a little bit about sort of these feedback loops that are required? And I think some of the things that Code for America, since its inception, has done very well. That's right. So I remember my very first job on the Hill, and I put my plan together of what policies I was going to do. And at the end of it, you know, year was up. It was performance review time. Um, we didn't really have much of a performance review, first of all. But secondly, I went, well, did I do well or not? And how do we determine that? And it made me think, right? I, I have an MBA by training and it made me think when we're doing policies, what really is that feedback loop? And frankly, there isn't one. Um, and I think therein lies a big, a big problem as we think about our system of governance here in, in the United States. But part of what attracted me so much to Code for America is not only do they believe in experimenting, doing a pilot, getting in there, seeing what's truly working and what's not, and looking at that data-driven outcomes of it, and then adjusting accordingly, right? Always iterating. What was even more attractive is this idea that Code for America decided to go into the hardest to reach communities, the lowest income areas, the most rural areas, and say, can technology be a lever to help reach people that might never have even been seen before by government? And that for me, as we've seen across the country in food stamps, what's called Get Cal Fresh in California, the largest food stamp state in the country, and then see it again in a crisis situation when school lunch programs are out and all of a sudden, how do you get resources to folks to have spent a decade seeing what works and what doesn't from the level of the very, very front lines makes all the difference in how our government system can work and how we end up building trust again in even our hardest to reach places. And, and that's one of the things I want to talk about a little bit in terms of, let's look at it from the context of priority. What would you say would be the most important internal government process that needs to change? Would you say it's procurement, human resources, communications, something else again? Wow. Um, <laughs> it's, every, it's all of the above, to be honest. You know, oh, I think 
That's a I know, hold on a second, hold on a second. <laughs> but I will give you an answer. But let me start with that if we want to change systems, I think every elected official needs to know there is no one silver bullet. Because I think elected officials do come in and say, I am going to do X and everything's going to be better. And frankly, it's boring. But, you know, I remember being on a presidential campaign and we had a five point, ten point plan for everything. But the truth is, it requires a first understanding that it is comprehensive. Now, the question is, where do you first, where do you start? And I think right now, um, when I think about the lack of trust that we have in our systems, it really is proving that a system can work. And I know that sounds really like trite or simple, but you know, when all of a sudden the DMV works, people start to believe in it. That's our, our Department of Motor Vehicles. And so my, our belief, our theory at Code for America is if we can prove that it can work in the most rural places, in the most in low income places, and at the very core of getting kids fed, we can just prove that. Then we can start to say, what did you, how did you do that? And what did you do in order to make that happen? And then that changes procurement policies. Then that changes how we communicate policies. Then that it changes how we actually even make elected officials, states, cities accountable. Because did it work or didn't it work in our hardest to reach places? And that's tangible. And I think I, I would tend to agree as well with that. And obviously, we're, we're very like-minded individuals, but I'm seeing that kind of mentality spread through a lot of different jurisdictions. And I'll give you an example real quick here. Uh, I'm based in Toronto, Canada, our province uh, that is Ontario, and the Ontario Digital Service Team has a mandate that says, we're going to start designing for the fringes. And it's not just in terms of social economic elements or factors, it's also with accessibility, language, you know, web accessibility as well. Mm -hmm. And so I'm assuming that that is very important as well for, for Code for America. Absolutely. Um, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. We know that you can make technology for a lot of things, but if we, we aren't in the business of just making government services better that already exists now and putting them into digital formats, we are actually intending to say this new way of this lever of technology how do we use that to make government services better? It's not enough just to digitize it. Our, our intent is to, as I like to say, we wanna, we wanna bend that tech curve towards good, towards justice, towards seeing more people. And it's interesting because you, you in your first for sort of um, comments, you mentioned quite a bit about rebuilding trust. And trust is such a fleeting little thing. It takes forever to build and it's so easy to lose. What would be sort of your recommendations or your thoughts, maybe not, maybe not recommendations, that would be too strong, but what are your thoughts generally in rebuilding trust? Like how does that take place? And what would you say is one of the biggest mistakes that governments do that wrecks the, the trust that they're building? Yeah, you know, um, you gotta show a long-term commitment. You gotta be there when it gets hard and stick with people through it. The pandemic EBT or all of our pandemic efforts are really a testament to that. Um, Code for America had a lot of relationships when we first started, but we had to dig in further in order to make sure we were with them. And that's the important key aspect to it. So I wanna change uh, gears a little bit here and talk about sort of civic technology purposefully. You had mentioned uh, this uh, stamp, uh, food stamps program in California, but let's go a little bit before that. And I'm going to ask the question very bluntly because those who are listening will, will know what I'm talking about. 
hackathons, overused gimmicks, or valuable exercises? I believe, well, first of all, anyone that attended our National Day of Civic Hacking um, would have sensed a couple of things. Number one, a thousand people signed up. Now, I have to say the idea that we are in an over-Zoomed environment and a thousand people decided on Saturday they're going to show up to see what they can do to help, that in and of itself is telling me that there's this hope out there because people are willing to engage to try and help. The second is we had 40 brigades across the country. That to me is 40 communities that came together that said, we want to do it. So do you mind, for those who don't know, uh, what, what's a brigade? What's a code for American uh, brigade? So a brigade is a code for, in some, code for San Jose, code for Philadelphia, code for, they're called, that's called a brigade. They are, they are um, a community that gets together to try and using technology, et cetera, to really solve problems. And so the fact that you have essentially 40 communities come together on that day to do one of three different projects. The beauty of that is we were able to get together and then have some actionable solutions. So we looked at the social safety net or we did asset mapping to try and figure out how can communities figure out where all the services are for them. And because our brigades are locally based, they're able to take that information and provide it to the local mayor or in in many cases, a lot of our brigades actually do have some public servants on them. And so I know I hopped into DC's brigade and one of the, uh, there was a gentleman on, on there going, God, okay, how can, can you guys send this over to me? And then let's keep talking about how we can actually incorporate that. That's the entire intent. And so um, the more engagement we have, and I think it has to be, we really do have to think about this. When you are doing hackathons or you are doing anything like that, there has to be an element rooted in the local area where you can actually take root after it. Um, that, I think, is the trick to it. And so I was pretty excited to see a thousand people show up, but even more excited to hear about the projects that actually are ongoing from that moment. One of the things uh, about hackathons in particular, and I know you're new to Code for America, so I'm, it might not be a fair question. So <laughs> please don't hesitate to call me out on this one, which is back in the mid-2000s, particularly I'll say between 2012 to 2015, 2016, at least in, in where I live, we, we came up with a term that we called hackathon fatigue. It seemed as though there was a hackathon, hackathon every weekend and you would go there with with great intentions, and you, and and it would just things would peter out at the end, and nothing would come out of it, and you would just got tired of of that cycle of almost wasted resources. So I guess my question for you a, a little bit is like, what do you think needs to be done to make hackathons much more effective? You said a great idea, which is hackathons should be done at the local level that can be rooted on, on something that that's tangible. But do you have any other advice or thoughts on that? Yeah, a couple things. I think one, identifying what you're gonna, what your projects are ahead of time is really important. And then making sure those projects that you're gonna do are really relevant, right? So it's not, in some ways, it's not a surprise that a thousand people show up and we're gonna talk about the safety, social safety net. And if you think about right now, and asset mapping for that matter, because right now, this is what people need, right? You're hearing from your neighbors like, gosh, it's the first time I've been on the unemployment insurance website. Can you believe this? Right? So I recognize that my, my big experience in this happened at a time where it was very relevant to conversations that are already happening in communities all across the country. And we were there. And so one might argue that you can't keep doing hackathons if you don't really have a relevant way or a relevant thing that is real for people. 
I think that's true, particularly in just an environment where there's so many competing priorities. Um, it really does have to be relevant and people have to actually see results from it. So you'll have to keep me accountable on this uh, in that. So what happened from that, right? And so some of our conversations at Code for America is how do we capture um, what the long-term tale of that, ha of that hackathon was? Well, let's continue on that thought because my next question deals with sustainability. And, and this is something, obviously, obviously, I'm not as worldly as you are, but I've had a chance to be exposed a little bit to international affairs. And one of the things that surprised me is how well-funded civic societies are in non-first world countries, because there seems to be a tangible democratic deficit and you'll have the IMFs and the World Banks and, some, and the, the, the UNs and whatever funding these great civil society uh, programs and organizations. At least I can speak in Canada and I would also, also assume in, in the United States, a lot of these civil society and civic tech projects are woefully underfunded and not supported through any kind of real infrastructure. Can you speak to that a little bit? Is, or, or perhaps most importantly, my question is, am I wrong in thinking this? No, I, I don't think you are wrong, actually. I think um, one of uh, what's happened during this pandemic is that people have begun to see exactly that. What has happened in the 2016 election and the 2018 election and going into this election is also the lack of sort of education, understanding about how civics works. Yeah. Um, I mean, just that fundamental idea of not only how our government works, right? That's one layer. Just how does it work? Who decides what? And then like get to the second layer, which is learning how it works, right? How do you actually deliver services? That's a derivative even away from how the system itself was made up. And so um, I believe, especially as a former high school teacher, I believe it's absolutely imperative that people understand their government, both who and how um, folks are elected, why their vote matters, but also what kind of services they should expect of their government, which is the piece for me, particularly underserved areas because of where I grew up, how little I knew about that growing up, and therefore how little I expected it to serve me. You know, as a woman, as a Latina, as a, you know, coming from a rural community, I didn't have any expectation because I didn't know much about it. It's funny you bring that up because you say you're a teacher, and coincidentally enough, while I did not go to teacher's <laughs> college, I was en route to becoming a teacher myself. And one of the things that I really appreciated about teaching is there's good teachers and there's bad teachers. There's some teachers that can take a really dry, boring subject and they're Bill Nye with it, or they're Neil deGrasse Tyson, and they can make it exciting and fun and engaging and people actually learn and they want to be part of it. When it comes to civics, even at the political level, even the George Clooney's of the world and the Angelina Jolie's are having a hard time getting people to come out and vote. How can we get them interested and making something like food stamps sexy and getting him involved in that conversation? Yeah, you know, this is always the you know, million dollar question, particularly to engage young people, especially when there's so many more interesting, engaging, entertaining um, ideas that are out there to do instead. Um, I think over the course of a pretty long period where people just sort of felt like things were gonna be okay, you didn't really engage. I do think there's a reason why we're seeing a different kind of engagement right now is because people are actually seeing it how it affects their life. 
I think there's the other model, which is really the Obama model, right? Where you're like, I don't know, but that seems cool and fun and let's go, right? That part probably hasn't been tried enough, right? Where you are bringing new voices and new ideas and changing things up and having a good time with it. Um, again, this is where I think technology needs to do, and I'd say even public servants, elected officials, government needs to do a much better job at marketing who we are and what we do if I consider myself part of a government. You know, how, how do we bring, you know, a pride and a coolness and an interesting factor back to it? Um, you know, right now, unfortunately, what's working is a fear of, man, if I don't say something, what will happen to this entity that could affect my life? But I do hope that in short order, we turn to a time where it's like, I want to be a part of that. I'm excited because I get to define what that is. You mentioned the word marketing a few moments ago, and I'm so glad that you did because there are so few people that talk about marketing, civic tech, open gov, open data. You got to make it like, and that's another thing you said is you got to make it relevant for people. Just saying it's, it's your civic duty, it's your responsibility. Uh, and in some cases, when it comes to civic engagement, it's punishment, right? Because judges issue community, community service as punishment. Yep. That's not going to bring eyeballs to the game. And and I would love to see a lot more marketing dollars, not just on get out the vote campaigns. I'd love to see marketing dollars being associated the same way that say Nike sells running shoes. Like this is something, this is a brand you want to be a part of. Civic engagement is a good brand. It's not just people stopping whaling ships. And, and I, is this something that you think, I know Code for America is really geared towards civic technology and integration of services and improving services, but do you think that would be something that Code for America would be interested in? Yeah, we talk a lot about it because um, we're, especially during the pandemic, when you're trying to reach people, right, there weren't a lot of really great pathways to do so. And that's because government institutions haven't really had what you would consider a marketing budget. And I understand that for a lot of people, it's like, well, you should be delivering more services, not marketing those services. I think, I think we probably need a different word for it. And maybe it's education. Like we need an, and you do see education, quote, education initiatives for some of our programs, but to have it actually as a part of whether you want to call it digital outreach, digital marketing, digital education. But I do think tech and digi digital tech can really help with this effort uh, because we kind of, you know, we're also seeing flyers are great, but they're really high intensity, hard to get out there to require a lot of effort. Let's try it out. Let's see how we can, government can use digital forward marketing um, to educate people about the services they have. It's always been something to me that I've never quite understood in public service and even for elected officials, and I've been in a lot of offices, is how little is spent on educating folks. And if there's one lesson of the time that I was there during the Obama administration, all I have to say to anyone is healthcare, right? The idea that it took so much effort, and I was in the room at midnight trying to figure out how to pass this bill, and then we passed it and yeah, it was over. And I think the idea, the lesson learned for a lot of elected officials during that period of time is how much the work is not done at moment of passage, how much you need to continue on that path to, un to have people understand what you did and how it affects their lives and how they use the service, even more importantly. We were talking about earlier about closing that feedback loop. And I'm always shocked when government agencies will spend a lot of time and resources to create a fancy and great open data set, for example, right? And it took a lot of time to clean it. 
and they added a whole bunch of different versions for it and they put it on their open data portal and then no one uses it because no one knows about it because there's no communications around it. There's no marketing. There's no pizzazz attached to it. And, and, and you're so right in saying like, it can't stop when you launch. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and probably the reason why I don't understand and why we need to change it is because it's a feather in an elected official's hat if you can have that feedback loop. Right. I mean, so often right before a campaign, a lot of particularly if you're an incumbent, you look and say, what did we do today? Right. What do we do over the course of four years that I've been here or five years that I've been here in, in the Senate case? And it gets lost. And so then you go on that journey every five years. But shouldn't that just be a part of the smoothing process? Right. And now, listen, I know it's scary for some elected officials because you're also going to learn what things didn't go right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and that's a too. Right. That's and, and sort of becoming comfortable with that risk aversion. And, you know, and I have to say anyone that was following during the Obama years, how much they put in alternative investments, right? This was like, a, you know, sun, you know, solar, et cetera. And they got huge backlash for the things that the investments that didn't go right. We as a country have got to be comfortable that our government can be innovative and take some risks that might not work as well. Um, but that's a learned process and a learned patience and understanding from the American people. You know, it's funny, this whole episode began with essentially teaching government how to govern. I think there's an element there that you're talking about that we need to teach the media, we need to teach the public that, that experimentation is messy. And I think the public and media in particular have an expectation that the government is going to be perfect. So whenever you put out something out there and, 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 and it doesn't work, then it becomes a scandal. And especially if you're a public servant, you, the last thing you want to be is on a headline somewhere that you're, you're part of a scandal because it didn't work out. Some are large, some are small. But if in this world of experimentation, agile development, yep. failing forward, you know, is, is the, the way things work. But people don't know that. Maybe I'm wrong in thinking this, that the public and the media needs to learn that government experimentation can be messy and that's okay. Or they need demanded of, of government, right? Like what are your different ideas? Even if they don't work, what are your different ideas? Mm. And I think that question rarely gets answered, asked, right? Asked yeah, or answered. Yeah. Usually it's like, what's the one thing you're going to do that's going to solve all the world's problems, yeah, yeah. right? It's never like, give me the options that you're going to try, <laughs> right? That you're going to experiment with and yeah. then let's see what works. But everybody knows in business process or organizational theory or anytime you're trying even taking care of your kids, you have a couple of different options and you try one, if that doesn't work, you try it. And that's the beauty of good organizational systems. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, which essentially you're talking about to a certain extent, like A-B testing. And that's what a lot of software, like platforms like Twitter and Facebook, people don't even know it when they're being A-B tested, especially when it comes to design. But do you think that's something that government could do without a public backlash? Um, not at the beginning. I think okay. we've got to get used to um, educating people that we're going through an experimentation process, right? That's really important. That beginning step of here's how we're going to do it. We're going to try A and we're going to try B and we're going to see which one's going to, going to move forward. You know, I think the pandemic um, has allowed for certain conversations that have never happened before. Um, I think you are beginning to see, you know, different options for a vaccine and different ways of doing it. I mean, just even the idea that there are different groups who are out there trying to figure this out, that matters. I think we're seeing a 50 state experimentation 
how 50 states all did it and what we're going to learn from it. Now, I don't think anyone's comfortable with it because it immediately becomes a competition. Well, this state did it better than that state. But by design of what is happening, it is forcing a 50, you know, 50 state experimentation. Um, so we will see it. The question is whether that can turn to a productive conversation and a productive way of doing things in the future. And given that this recovery is going to be a while, I think we might be forced to have those kinds of experimentations and conversations and a learn from the way different states have done things. Has Code for America been heavily involved with this recovery phase? We have. Um, we were immediately brought into pandemic EBT. Um, which is when school lunch programs all could not give kids a school lunch program at school because they were all cut, they were all shut down. Federal government put out um, money to say, how are you going to get resources for families to now go buy groceries for those kids? And so in very short order, the entire country, every single state had to submit plans in order to be able to do this. And so because of our work, our long-term work with food stamps and get Cal fresh program, we were brought in and started to work with a coalition to try and reach all 50 states. Every state but one, I believe, submitted a plan, got it approved, and now we're actually in the process of working through every single state to now do the implementation. What's fascinating for me is it, um, I would say, everyone is very clear that outcomes matter, right? So that feedback loop, we're, we know that in California, 92% uptake in our EBT program. At the end of it, in very short order, you're going to have the numbers of how many kids were fed in every single state. And I will say one feedback loop through our efforts in this and being involved in it is um, just a couple of days ago, it was the one thing that got added to legislation, which is pandemic EBT to feed kids again in the new year on a bipartisan basis. One of the only thing added to what's called the final bill of the legislative cycle. And so it's an indication that when we actually come together and put resources like that, we can actually change it. And Code for America, we just are both honored as well as have a heavy sense of responsibility to figure out all across the country, how do we get food to kids while systems don't work and how to use technology to do so. How has the pandemic changed how you work? And I don't mean internally in your offices or your mandate, I'm talking about tactically work because you, it's hard. Not everyone has good access to broadband internet. I know that's been a big issue in Canada in particular and other parts of the world, but how have you guys changed how you physically do the work to reach out to the brigades and the community at large? Yeah, you know, it's, um, we kind of take the same approach, which is you try something and then you iterate. I mean, even within our own office, we now have no meeting Thursdays because people are Zoomed out, right? Um, <laughs> We Zoom fatigue. How can exactly. Zoom fatigue. Yeah. Exactly. And so we're like, okay, no meeting Thursdays. Let's see how that goes. Right. We did a shutdown over the summer where we required everyone like no, like three days. We're shut down, and we actually express that externally. Right. Trying to say maybe maybe this is good for other organizations as well. And then when we do interact, we try our best to be really intentional about how we're going to do that. Um, I, I will say this, one thing that really has changed with our external partners is that in a world where we used to convince government that digital was good for them or helpful or would make it better, now that it's the only way you can do things, right, the, the conversation has quickly changed where we're getting calls like, hey, can you help me do this? 
that part I think is a welcomed change because it, it really does change the discussion. It also changed the will of what people can do within systems today. It's, it's amazing how a crisis can focus the mind. And I've done a number of these episodes with a number of different people from government, NGOs, civic tech. And it, I'm not going to say it's a shameful joy because it's not, it's unfortunate. But in a very strange way, the pandemic has pushed forward open government, open data, civic technology, more than I think it has happened during my tenure in the last 10 years. And I think there's a weird reconciliation that takes place there because you don't want to be thankful for something that's been so, so bad for the world in general. And I don't know. You know what? I think I painted myself into a comment here because I have nothing to say here. Uh, so we're just going to move on. And I, I have a, a, a very whimsical question to ask you. Let's imagine for a moment that Code for America was a person. And let's imagine for a moment that this person was to find themselves in front of a wish-granting genie. <laughs> what three wishes would Code for America ask for? Um, huh. So I'd say I actually only probably need one, but I'm going to take three. <laughs> um, but my, my one, and I, and I mean this, my one is to have government systems and programs um, that help every single person in this country reach their full potential. And I mean, we're here right today. Uh, RBG, notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is lying in state. If you can imagine that she actually grew up at a time where she could reach her full potential, I mean, what kind of world we would have just by one person alone. And if you take that and if Code for America can be a part of a system that actually does that, that's pretty amazing. But I'm going to do the other two and they'll be faster. Sure, sure. One, one, I think um, that we never stop evolving to push human potential um, to be better stewards of humankind. I think it's particularly relevant right now in kind of the divisiveness and the rhetoric that we are seeing in our country, but really around the world, that is really just so damaging to our um, humanity. And so I think that'd be my second wish. And then my third wish is that we as a world along the way really enjoy this thing called life. I think I am much more aware of that in this pandemic. Um, I think a lot more of us are much more aware of quality of life in general um, and our connectedness to each other, that joyful connection that I think I so long for. And I know I've heard it in so many people who who would say, like, I'm not a people person. And today you're like, God, I just want to be with people and be enjoying life. So that's my third wish. Well, let me ask you a question real quick, because a lot of the things that you're talking about are things that I've witnessed in, in Canada here which is, for example, like a four-day work week, right? And actually changing that, that work-life balance, things even like guaranteed basic income and, and, and things of that nature to help people along those lines that has, the pandemic has forced so many political, not just uh, t- like uh, how you work inside the government, but a lot of the policies that were sort of on the fringes have come to the top. Has that happened in the United States as well? Has, have those work-life balance conversations been taking place in a very tangible way? You know, they, they are and they aren't because this is so unusual that we're all kind of living in a world that we never thought would exist. 
So I do wonder, as things return, how applicable is it? Or will this just be a strange moment in time? Mm. What I will say, though, and that my, you know, my number one wish, wish, again, was to have everyone reach their full potential. I think everyone is aware that they're not living in their full potential. And I think that's what is so remarkable about this moment and has a chance to change systems. Because people now know, right, folks who thought they were living to their full potential or could have anything they wanted could no longer have it. So there'll be an understanding of what it means when you can't afford childcare, of what it means when you can't go to the grocery store, right? All of those things, you know, we're all feeling what it means to not be in your full potential. And I think there's some, um, I hope anyway, I hope there is some lessons that stick here as we do rebuild our systems again. Talking about full potential for a moment here, the civic tech community seems to be a lot, have a lot of people that there's almost like a calling attached to them. It's like becoming a, a nurse or, or a religious leader or something along those lines. Like there's, there's a feeling like I want to help the public in, in ways that I don't care if I'm paid or not. I just know I have to do it. So like I call it a calling. Have you guys noticed that? Like, for example, since the pandemic took place, have you had more volunteers choose to sign up and help out? So during crisis times, we often see our brigades fire up, um, whether there's a hurricane, right? And they, they jump into action on food maps. Um, and I think it's twofold. I think one, it's people wanting to put their, you know, put their energy into doing something. But I think two, systems all of a sudden become open to the kinds of things our brigades do. So it, it's twofold. And I think we're, we, we've been seeing that over the course of the last 10 years. This is the first time it's happened on a national scale like this. So all of our brigades are engaged. But we have over time have seen, you know, people step up in these crisis um, situations. And the idea is we hope some of this stuff sticks within the community as well and within our federal government at the moment. Would you say the community in general is growing or has become stagnant or it's sort of asymptoted a little bit? It's not going at the pace it once was? I, I would say it's, it's hard to tell in a crisis. It is, yeah. And yeah. especially because I would say at the very beginning of this crisis, everyone jumped in, everyone was fired up. And I think people are now going, gosh, what does this mean in the long term? Are we going to be like this mm -hmm. for a while? And, and so I think we're actually figuring that out literally as we speak, as we think about our annual summit, for instance, next year. We're having these conversations, which is where will we be where will this movement be at that time? And what do they need? And, and that's still an evolving question as we're all determining how does tomorrow look and how does 2021 look? Well, this has been a, a fantastic conversation, Amanda, and a great way to end it on that note. How does 2021 look? Because there's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. And we all have that question in our heads, I'm sure. I know I do. You clearly do. And I would wager that many of the audience does as well. But our time is sort of running out here. And I want to give you a chance. Is there anything, any exciting announcements that you'd like to share or messages that perhaps we didn't get a chance to talk about in this interview? Yeah, I'll, I'll add in one final one, which is, you know, we're going through a lot of crises here in the United States. But one of which that we didn't get a chance too much to talk about is this racial, racial justice racial equity, and um, so much of, I think, the opportunity for technology, the opportunity for Code for America, is as we're thinking through technology, is making sure that we're building the kinds of systems that really do see all communities 
And I think right now, having lived in this country and seeing how many systems have really largely have left folks out, it's our job in the civic tech community to make sure that we're bending technology and government towards a way of seeing more people um, and treating all folks with dignity and respect. And so um, it's a real honor to be on your show to say that, <laughs> but also really just to be in this space with you because I believe no matter what we are in 2021, technology has a role. Government will be redefined and it takes all of us to redefine it in a way for the better. Well, again, you're just great at wrapping up episodes here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm going uh, to to end this thing real quick here. Tell the people how they can uh, reach out to Code for America, how they can reach out to you personally, yep. and, and just sort of give us that sign off a little bit. Yeah, come to our site, Code for America. We're going to have Brigade Congress. We have National Civic Day of Civic Hacking every single year, and we have a Code for America Summit in likely May. I'd love to see you then. I'd love to see this group engaged. Please keep a lookout. I'm on at Amanda Renteria uh, on Twitter. I always appreciate direct messages um, on things that I say because they're all across the board. Um, and just thank you for having me. Well, the pleasure was all mine. And thank you for, for taking the time and being part of uh, this little podcast that I'm doing here. You were great. And, and uh, I wish you guys the best of luck at Code for America. Thank you. And as usual, I want to thank our audience for listening. And as usual, please leave us a rating or a comment on how we can make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.